You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, everyone. So good to be here. Good to see all of you, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Andy has been doing these the last two weeks, um, The Joyful Life of Prayer. And as he was doing them, I was reminded of things I've learned over the years about the Lord that really encouraged me and sustained me. And um, they've certainly enhanced my prayer life. And I would like to encourage you to know that um, I don't have a prayer method. That should encourage all of you struggling to develop your prayer method, right? Yes, but I do have a prayer life and I have a devotional life. And it's actually one of the things I like to talk the most about is uh, my devotional life. And really because I'm talking about the Lord and the things I've learned and the things that have encouraged me. And so they're keys there are three keys this morning. I probably will only get to the first two. But they're keys that benefit your own devotional life in God. It's knowing what God's like. It's knowing his love. And being able to be truthful with him. And I don't think I'll get to the last one. Um, but each one of these have the capacity to enrich and deepen our experience in connecting to the Lord. In um, really, really powerful, powerful ways. Uh, knowing what God's like and having an, an accurate understanding will literally transform your life. When you know what he's like, it really will transform your life. Knowing him accurately will enable us to enjoy him. If you let me just say this, and I want you to think about it. If you don't enjoy God, you don't have a completely accurate viewpoint of who he is. Because there's a lot of, um, we're, in a, we're in a warfare. We're in a warfare. We're in a battle zone. I mean, Christians that don't understand they're growing up in a battle zone think things about the Lord that aren't accurate. Coming, coming over here today, I was thinking about a gentleman who said, no matter what goes on in his life, he just refuses to give up. He refuses to back off, refuses to give up his faith. And I was thinking about um, things that don't happen for us that we want to happen, or they haven't happened yet. And it was interesting, Donna was um, disposing of... Uh, old records and things. How many of you keep boxes and boxes of useless records at home because you don't know what to do with them? Yeah, well, we. Uh, she was disposing of them. She ran across a bill, a doctor's bill from 36 years ago that has to do with my back. For those of you who don't know, I'm looking at maybe some back surgery. But this is going on. I mean, 36 years is a long time to wait, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And it's not that I don't believe that God heals. It's not that I haven't seen God heal. It's not that I haven't seen God heal miraculously. But sometimes, who knows, right? Come on, anybody here this morning? I knew there were people here earlier. I saw them. Um, and a lot of what people call conviction, I believe, is actually negativity and condemnation. And I can say this in all honesty, and I've been a believer for 50 plus years. I have never in my life had the Lord speak to me in an unkind or negative way. Never. And trust me, I deserve some unkind words. If I was God, I would have worn me out. But that's just my testimony. And so God's good. And if you don't enjoy him, you need to reinvestigate. Why? Because he's, he's just remarkable. 
And so I want to look a little bit about, just make some comments about Moses, the deliverer, the one that uh, God used to get the Hebrews out of Egypt. Against all odds and his own failures and challenges, Moses overcame in life because he, quote, saw him who is invisible. And so take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 27. It should be overhead. Why don't you read that with me? Oh, oh yeah. When you read it out loud, words come out of your mouth. Got to tell you. <laughs> By, it's not up there? Now it is. Oh, sorry. <laughs> By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we have a little problem here with the paradox, don't we? But listen, to, to enjoy God, we must begin to see him. And if you analyze that verse, and we could look at this verse for a good while, what Moses did was he did by faith. By faith. And one of the problems with faith is it's, it's, you're never sure if you're quite right. How many of you understand that aspect of faith? You're sure to jumping into something that you question. So it says here, by faith that Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. How did Moses endure? as seeing him who is invisible. But that's, like I said, that's a paradox. How do you see something you can't see? A paradox is a statement that seems contradictory or it goes against common sense. But I'm going to tell you, the life of faith will beat your common sense black and blue. I'm serious. It will. So at this time... In Moses' life, seeing him who was invisible meant Moses began to know God personally and he began to understand and perceive or discern without actually seeing him in some kind of a form. He began to know what he was like. And that sustained him. Actually, later Moses had some encounters where, well, it says... Moses spoke to God face to face. We can only imagine what that must have been like. And Moses had that burning bush experience. And we can only imagine what that was like. But all of those were after he actually lived by faith for an extended period of time. So you're listening to me. But he saw someone who was invisible. He saw, the, uh, he saw God. But see is about a, perce a perception or a knowledge. But by faith, Moses knew God in a way that changed his life. He saw him that's invisible. So we need to know what God's like. Not, not just about his love, obviously about his love, but there's more to God than just that he loves us, right? There's much more. He has ways. He has... Emotions, thoughts, ideas. Um, well, who is he? Well, I want to say this. God is the God who sees us. And I'm going to talk about Genesis 16 here for a few minutes. But first, we need to see that God sees us. Say this. God sees me. God sees me. Now, he's not disinterested. He's not like a security camera that coldly and unemotionally records what happens in our lives. That's being seen. But he's a loving father who deeply cares about our lives. But we need to know that he sees us that way. Not clinically, not coldly, but relationally and emotionally, we need to see him that way. Because you're already seeing God. You already have a perception of God. But is it real? 
Or is it accurate? I mean, um, someone said, what would you tell your 20-year-old self at your age? And I said, I would tell my 20-year-old self, just because you're convinced that something's true has absolutely nothing to do with whether it's true or not. Nothing. It may have something, but usually it's just what you think. So, um, we need to see him that way. We need to see him accurately. And there's a problem with seeing him accurately. It's because we can't always get him to do uh, what we want him to do. But, you know, honest to goodness, I think Jesus was disappointed on the cross. How many of you could go there with me? My God, my God, what did he say? Why have you forsaken me? And I think, I can't explain to you why bad things happen to you or why you did bad things to others. We don't think that much about that, but we do think about how things affect us more probably. But um, I, can't, I can't give people satisfactory answers for that, but I can say this about God. He participated. Are you listening to me? He participated to the highest degree beyond what we can comprehend because there was this cosmic eternal thing going on in God that we would probably never understand or fully comprehend. But even the Son of God would find himself in a place where he felt forsaken. Now, was he forsaken? Well, some say he, God turned his back on Jesus. I don't know if he did or not. I think you can feel forsaken and not be forsaken. How many of you with me? Yeah, if you've ever felt forsaken, you that was a feeling. It wasn't necessarily an accurate view of God. Nevertheless, feelings are important because they play such a huge part in our life. But we need to see God accurately. Now, Genesis chapter 16 describes an extremely dysfunctional episode in the lives of Abraham I'm going to call her Sarah, but at that point her name was Sarai. I just don't want to say Sarah. I like to say Sarah better. I've actually, I've got a daughter now named Sarah. We pulled her in the family through one of my boys. So I like that name. And they're not dysfunctional. Or they're not as dysfunctional as Abraham and Sarah anyway. I don't, I'm, I'm, come on. I'm now, moving right along, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I am not going to go into much detail. If you want to read Genesis 16, I highly recommend it. But let's, let me suffice it to say there was a serious relational dispute, and that puts it very lightly, that arose between Sarah and Hagar, one of her female servants. They called maidservants, certain scriptures, certain Bible translations. Then... Sarah and Abraham had a huge argument about her. And finally, Abraham, in his exasperation, it seems like from the text, and he was part of the problem. I'm not pinning all this on, on Sarah, but he told Sarah, do whatever she pleased with Hagar. And she dealt so harshly with her that Hagar ran away into the wilderness without a way to care for herself, and she was pregnant. And that pregnancy was part of that whole dysfunctional story. It's just too complicated to get into. But Hagar was in a mess. Now, the text tells us that an angel found her, asked her what she was doing, and told her wisdom dictated that she return and submit to Sarah. And if she did... God would abundantly bless her. Oh, Hagar was so changed by the Lord through this encounter that she obeyed. She went back. But here's how she related to the Lord from that point on in her life. She actually called. She gave the Lord a new name. This Lord who had spoken to her, she said, you are the God who sees. That was her new name for the Lord. The Lord that sees me. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? And she had. 
She had seen him, she said, who sees me. And that, to her, was a real revelation. God did not change. Hagar's understanding of God changed so much that she would go back into a very difficult, dysfunctional situation because God had also given her promises that were remarkable. But here's what I'm saying. God saw her. God knew her. God cared about her. He did not want those things to happen to her. Nevertheless, they did. But she knew God felt that way. She knew she was known. That God knew her. Knew in italics that God not knew about God knew her and saw her, and that changed her life. And, and the, the record, Genesis 16, 13, says, Then Hagar, says, Then she, but it's Hagar. Then Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees, which in, I guess, Hebrew or whatever it was, El Roy, El Roy, for she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? That will change your life. That will change your life. It will. That will increase your devotional life. That will aid your prayer life. So God has committed himself. This is so interesting. He's committed himself to enabling us to know him. How many of you have sort of turned away from the Lord and he wouldn't leave you alone? You little sly grins out there, but you're, I think your elbows, you need some oil for the elbow. How many have had the hounds of heaven, hounds of heaven, hot on your hiney? Is that alliteration? Hounds of heaven. Come on. Well, here's the new covenant. In Hebrews 8, verse 10. (laughs) For here's the covenant. And this is a quote from the Old Testament in the New. I will one day establish with the people of Israel. I will embed my laws within their thoughts. I will fasten them on their hearts. I will be their loyal God and they will be my loyal people. And the result of this will be that everyone will know me as Lord. There will be no need at all to teach their fellow citizens or brothers by saying, you should know Yahweh or you should know the Lord. Since everyone will know me inwardly from the most unlikely to the most distinguished. And so God is committed and it goes on to say, that the key to that is for their sins, I will forgive and I will remember them no more. Remember them no more. For their sins, I will forgive. But God said, I will put my laws in their minds. I will fasten them onto their hearts. And so he's committed to helping us know him accurately. So, I want to shift here. I want to ask a question, then I want to begin to try to answer it to the best of my ability, although you could talk about this stuff for a long time, not just uh, an hour and 45 minutes this morning. I was just checking. Here's a great question. What attracts God? What attracts the Lord? What What attracts the Lord's attention to certain people? Have you ever known certain people that the Lord seems to be more attracted to it than than to others? Have you ever seen that? Well, we know that God loves all of us, right? God so loved the world. He gave. But did you know that there are things that attract God to us in significant ways? Who would like to know what these are? Yes, of course we would. Well, Some of them have to do with heart attitudes that matter to the Lord. It's not just that he sees, but what he sees about us that can attract him. And and honestly, it's not exactly some of the things we may 
assume. So what does God look at or what does God look for? Well, one thing is this idea of humility. But humility, you know, when you talk about being humble, most people think you have to be sort of depressed or quit wearing makeup. I mean, I don't know, some weird thing, but I quit wearing makeup years ago, but um, come on. No, what, what, what does he look for? How many of you, when you were younger believers, maybe some of you aren't too long in the faith now, I don't know, but how many of you, when you were younger, realized how much you, 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 you hit a, you hit a little tough spot where you knew you just needed some more grace from God. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so you're trying to figure out how can I get some more? Well, I've been there plenty of times. Well, when I was younger, I read this verse, this following verse that really caught my attention. It's Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I thought, aha, the key. All I need to do is look into the eyes of the Lord and I will find grace just like Noah did. And then I had this thought, but what if the Lord's not looking at me? And I thought, oh, what if he's not looking at me? I'm trying to look into his eyes, but, but who's he looking at? Let's ask that question. Who's the Lord looking at? Who's the Lord looking at? I'll say it for all of us. Who's the Lord looking at? Come on, who's he looking at? Do you want him to look at you? Hey, he may be looking at you and you don't even know he's looking at you because you're looking at yourself instead of looking at him. Come on, that's worth $100 right there. That was a great, that was pretty good. Okay, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, we do have an overhead for this. Verse 1, this is what Yahweh says. You want to read this with me? Well, let me say this before we get into it. Verse 1 is how men try to get God to come hang out with them. And verse 2 is why God actually will do it. Okay? Verse 1, we plot and plan. Verse 2, God says you don't know what you're talking about, but I can help you. All right, verse 1. The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place where I will rest. So the Lord is responding to this idea. What can we do to snooker God into our lives in a really good way, right? Build him a house, give him a place to rest. Maybe you'll come. When the Lord says in verse two, let's read this. My hand made these things so they all belong to me, declares Yahweh. But there is one my eyes are drawn to. Here we go. The humble one, the tender one, or the one crushed in spirit, it actually says in another translation, the trembling one who lives in awe of all I say. Now, the problem is when we are tender or depressed or, how did it put it, crushed in spirit, Lots of times we so much have our eyes on ourselves, we don't understand that you have just entered into a category of being with God in a unique and wonderful way. He says, there's one my eyes are drawn to. And then he gives that description. My eyes are drawn to the humble one, the tender one, the crushed in spirit, the one who honors what I have to say. And I, I want to say this. I love the Bible. I love, the, I love all the things the Lord showed me from the Scripture. I love the Word. I love when he speaks to me out of the Bible. That's an aspect of one the Lord will draw near to. Now, I don't understand. There's certain things in the Bible I don't understand. How many of you are with me there? 
And I know everybody tries to give a systematic understanding of everything the Bible says. I don't know how you do that either, quite frankly. This is a big, complicated book. But I do know this. Jesus shows us who he is in the New Testament really, really clearly, and he says that's who God is. So that's a pretty good start, right? That's right. If you don't know who God is, go read who Jesus is because he said, I and the Father are one. Paul's letter says he's the express image of God. He's every, he's the accurate representation, meanwhile he's God himself, but of God. My eyes are drawn. Think about that. My eyes are drawn. I only have eyes for you. You remember that old rhythm and blues or whatever that thing? Are the stars out tonight? I can't tell if it's cloudy or bright. I only have eyes for you, dear. That's a hard song to sing, even if you can sing. But there's another verse, Isaiah 57, 15. And I'll read this out of the New English Translation. For this is what the high and exalted one says, the one who rules forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in an exalted and holy place, but also with the discouraged and humiliated in order to cheer up the humiliated and to encourage the discouraged. Now, this is Old Testament. This is even Old Covenant. But, of course, I believe Isaiah prophesied so much about the New Covenant reality. It starts over there around chapter 40, particularly chapter 42. I love chapter 42 and 53 and 6. But in Isaiah 57, I skip down to verse 19, and this... This sounds too good to be true, but it says, even in the Old Covenant, I am the one who gives them reason to celebrate. Complete prosperity. Now, that's frightening. Complete prosperity is available both to those who are far away and those who are nearby, says the Lord, and I will heal them. So they're phenomenal promises, even in the Old Testament. But it begins with the God who dwells with the discouraged and the humiliated in order to help them up out of those places. There's no shame in being discouraged, ladies and gentlemen. And there's no, we feel ashamed, but there should be no shame to even in being humiliated. I mean, how many of you done something and got Extremely embarrassed. Good night. I could tell you a couple of my own, but I think I'll spare you. But let me say this too. There's another hard attitude that causes God to respond with joy. And he wants us to respond to him. And it's a sinner who repents. But there's more to repentance than admitting you did something wrong or that you are something bad. It's about turning to the Lord. It's about a turning. It's not just about turning away. It's about turning towards. You understand what I'm saying? It's not about beating yourself to death over what you've done. You have to own it, but you own it to get rid of it, to turn to him. That's the spiritual principle. You own to disown. You don't own to hang it around your neck and walk through life for the rest of your days because that doesn't help. Shame is not um, a practical method of healing. It's not. It's terrible. And I, 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 I deal with it. I'm sort of, re, uh, anyway, it's just something. But Luke 15 The story of the prodigal son is where we find this verse about God being joyful over someone's response. And he says this about the prodigal son. Now, you know the story of the prodigal son. He took took his inheritance. He wasted it. He ran with prostitutes and all the things he probably probably shouldn't have done. He really probably shouldn't have done those things. 
Of course not. Um, and he, he repented, but he didn't even repent perfectly. He was just going to try to sneak back in as a servant to his dad's house. And his dad had a completely different idea about what to do for him. Read Luke 15 again. But he says this, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven. Just say that with me. More joy in heaven, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Yeah, that's the, that's the story of the prodigal son. It describes someone that decided to turn to the Lord and to look to him for everything they needed. That's like full-orbed repentance. And then there says there's more joy in heaven over that person than over 99 who do not need to repent. So I've got this question. Oh, how much, how much joy is there in heaven over the 99 who didn't need to repent? None? No. This kind. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you or he will rest in his love. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, these are the people he did, didn't have to repent. This is like standard joy. Normal joy. And I've studied that verse, and so I made up my own translation of Zephaniah 3.17. Here you go. And it's not authorized. But listen, Jehovah, the Lord your God, the self-existent eternal God in your midst, who is in the nearest part of you, the intensely powerful champion, he's mighty, he will save you. He will free you. He will cause you to be safe. He will help you. He will brightly and cheerfully rejoice over you, okay, with exceeding joy, exceedingly. He will brightly and cheerfully rejoice over you with exceeding joy, but these words don't explain it enough, exceedingly, exceedingly, exceeding joy and rejoicing. That's over a standard didn't have to repent guy. He will hold his peace and his affectionate love. Still part of Zephaniah 3.17. He will spin around. Now this is one of the definitions for rejoicing. He will spin around God. This is talking about God. The Lord. He will spin around with energetic emotion over you with a loud cry of gladness, shouting triumphantly, normal joy. But God has more joy than over one who repents and turns to him than even that. That's an idea about God we need to embrace. And it's been a very closely held secret, apparently, for many years. Tucked away in the little... Humble book of Zephaniah. What else does God see? Well, the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, that could have been an idiom that just meant he knows everything about you, but I preferred um, to think he actually knows how many hairs every different person has on their head. What problem would it be for him to know? He goes through the crowd here this morning, numbering hair, people's head. Some of them aren't complicated. They don't, but... <laughs> but think about that. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Could God really be that interested? Jesus said he was. Do not fear, therefore, 
for you are of more value than many sparrows. And that's earlier in the, in the Matthew 10. I just don't want to get to it. What else does he do that draws you to him devotionally? Well, in several places, it tells us that God saves your tears in a bottle. Let me read the Passion Translation, Psalm 56, 8. Now, this is who God is, according to David. You've kept track of all my wandering and my weeping. Say that with me. Lord, you have kept track of all my wandering and my weeping. You've stored my many tears in your bottle. Not one will be lost, for they are all recorded in your book of remembrance. Could it be that's one of the things we'll discover when we pass through this life is that we have a, there's a bottle that contains all our tears. What does that mean? What if that's not literal? Well, if it's not literal, it's certainly still a remarkable idea that God would number. God would care that profoundly. Psalm 126.5 says that those who sow in tears shall without a doubt, without a doubt, Without a doubt, without a doubt, reap in joy. Those who sow in tears shall, without a doubt, reap in joy. And see, when you read Psalm 126.5, you're seeing all four seasons of life in a sense, not just the fall, not just the winter, but the spring and the summer, the sowing. Are your tears just shed or sown? Years ago, I was upset with how some money was handled in a church situation that I gave. And the Lord asked me why I was upset. And I said, well, they should have done this out of the other. And the Lord said, oh, I thought you gave it. I thought you gave it. And so I reversed. I said, I gave it. I changed my mind. Or we can change our mind about our tears. And we can say we sow, have, we have sown them for our future. And, and Spurgeon called tears are liquid prayers. Charles Spurgeon, tears are liquid prayers. And there's a list of different kinds. And the Lord stores them in a bottle. He remembers each and every one. Tears of sorrow. Hezekiah wept when he was sick. Tears of joy. Genesis 33, 4, tears of compassion. Jesus wept when Lazarus was dead, he wept. Tears of desperation, we find that in Esther. Tears of travail, tears of giving birth in Isaiah 42. Tears of repentance. But God sees those. We could, we could think that way. Would that help us to see that? To see our life that way? Now I want to talk about Maybe one last thing here. I want to talk about a cheerful giver. One of the things I said a couple of weeks ago, probably last week, when the offering comes, I don't take offerings. I receive them. Because offerings need to be free will. You should not be coerced into generosity because that is not generosity. That's something else. And the reason I'm saying this is, number one, you should give to this church and help us do wonderfully well. But there's something more important than that to the Lord in a sense. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it's for God loves a cheerful giver. This is another thing that attracts the Lord is generosity. And generosity should be a way of life, not just something preachers try to get people in the churches to do because of the budget. But 2 Corinthians 9 says in the Amplified, and, and please hear this through, for God loves, that is, he takes pleasure in, 
He prizes above other things and is unwilling to abandon or to do without a cheerful, hilarious, joyous, prompt-to-do-it giver whose heart is in his giving. There's something that happens in God's heart when something has happened in our heart when it comes to generosity. He says he can't do without that person. That's pretty good. If God can't do without me, that's good. If that draws God's mercy to me, because you can't buy it, I'm not saying that. But when you see him for who he is, it prompts you to be generous. And then this recurring concept, this recurring process goes on. You see God's generous, makes you generous. He sees you're generous. He's generous again. There's this cycle, you could say. And then there's Acts chapter 10. This is one of the most remarkable episodes in the book of Acts about Cornelius, the centurion. And it says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a Roman soldier occupying Israel. And Israel did not like being occupied, but this is who he was. But he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when Cornelius observed him, he was afraid and he said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, listen, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. There was something an unsaved, unbelieving man did that affected heaven. Your prayers, your alms have come up for a memorial before God. He got God's attention. Then the angel said, send men to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And so the most remarkable thing had to happen. Peter would not associate with Gentiles. God had to talk him out of that, send him to the Cornelius' house. He preached the gospel to Cornelius' house, and before he could get through, the power of God touched that family. It says they got filled with the Holy Spirit. It says they got baptized in water. How did that happen? God saw a man's prayers and generosity. It became a memorial in heaven, and he could not but respond. And that's how the Gentiles got saved. That's how almost everyone in this room entered into the kingdom or it was proven that we were available over one man. How many of you want to be that man? How many of you want to be that way that God knows you in heaven because of your kindness, your goodness, your hospitality? We've been talking a lot about hospitality, your generosity. Did I say that was the last one? I was wrong. One more. I want you to repeat a number after me, and this will be the last one. 42,360. Say that with me. 42,360. Ezra chapter 2. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. This is making no sense. It will in a minute. Their horses. Somebody say horses. Their horses, 736. Their mules, 245. Camels, 435. 
They're donkeys. 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which at Jerusalem offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. Here's what I'm telling you. There were 5 million Jews living in that Middle Eastern region. And when it was time to come back from the dispersion, they had been forced out and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. Out of 5 million people who responded, how many responded? 42,360. And their donkeys and their mules and their horses and their singers and their servants were all numbered. Why? Because God takes special delight in those who commit themselves to his plan. How many didn't come back? We don't know. How many gave up? We don't know. Their names are even listed in Ezra, the family names. Their names listed. Well, what about the ones who didn't come back? God knows who they were, but he didn't tell us. That's what it means to God when you say, I'm going the distance. I'm going to build in the life of God, in my community, in my church, in my family. Forty-two thousand three hundred and sixty. Amen. Amen. How about that, y'all? Yeah. Why don't we stand up together? One of the things that we do value in this church is response. We want to respond to the word of the Lord when it comes to us, and out as um. Robin was preaching this morning. I was thinking about uh, repentance in a joyful way. So I've been, I've been putting things like, uh, well, like last week I preached on the joyful life of prayer. And so as he was talking this morning, I was thinking about the joyful life of repentance, the joyful life of generosity. Uh, So often repentance gets such a negative spin on it that we don't realize that repentance is really an entryway into the joyful life of God. And so what we want to do this morning is just take a minute and respond to that. Uh, We've got a baptism in two weeks. And so we we don't normally do altar calls in this church, but uh, I love to introduce people to Jesus. I think Jesus is really worth knowing. And if you've never met Jesus before, um, I'm not going to have you run to the altar right now. But after service is dismissed, if you want to come up and find me, I would love to pray with you. Um, Also, if you do want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized before, come find me after church because we're going to dunk some people in two weeks. And And baptism is really, really important in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. So, but um, this morning, you may have been a Christian a really long time, and you may find that you have stuff in your life that you just need to simply repent of. So we're just going to take a moment and do that this morning. So just close your eyes and, um, you know, you know the drill. You can put your hands out if you want to. You don't have to, but take some posture of prayer right now. And maybe you just need to do a little bit of inventory in your heart, in your mind. And um, let's just take a minute and, and take those things that have caused us to stumble, have caused us to miss God's best for our lives. It could be anxiety. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be lust. It could be 
any number of things that human beings contend with, contend against. And just set those things before the Lord right now. You don't have to worry about his wrath. You don't have to worry that you're coming to him and he's going to strike you down. And whatever you're bringing before him right now, I want you to imagine that joyful response that Robin (laughs) described to us this morning. The joy that is exploding in heaven when a person humbles themselves before God and changes their mind, turns from the thoughts that they had to the thoughts that God has. Holy Spirit, we thank you right now for the power of forgiveness working in our lives. We thank you for the release that comes from changing our minds, the freedom that comes from giving up sin in our lives. Right now in this moment, we want to turn from the things that are not of you And we want to go onward, farther and further into your kingdom and into your ways, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. All God's people said, amen. One other thing, I want to tell you this one little thing that I've been doing recently. And I'm in danger of losing my reward for telling you this. So... But I'm going to say it anyways, because I think it's worth it. Um, Robin mentioned this man in the New Testament named Cornelius, who was giving his alms to the poor. And, And right now we live in a world where there are people without homes standing at the corner of every intersection right now. And one of the biggest issues right now is that we're going from a cash society to a cashless society. And it's very difficult to give alms to the poor when all you have is a debit card. So one of the things that I've been doing is I've been keeping a hundred bucks of cash in my middle console so that I can give money to people who are in need of it. And um, I think that that's a really practical and good way to continually be giving alms to the poor. It's important. I don't care what your theories are on on giving to the the homeless or whatever. It's like at some point we need to check our opinions at the door and enter into the acts of mercy that God is calling his people to. And it's a really practical way of doing it. It's just to keep cash on hand in your car to give people in need. Like start there. Start there and just see what God does. Amen. So I do want to remind you that we have ministry teams up front. If you want prayer this morning, we would invite you to come forward. We got prayer ministry teams up here in this corner. And um, uh, other than that, we'll see you next week. Panthers are on at one o'clock. Go Panthers. Go Panthers. Take somebody out to lunch. We'll see you all next week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.